He was going through his life knowing he could die at any moment. He just lived his life how he wanted to live it. But there was always that part of him that was very aware of his mortality. And he really struggled with depression. And that was something a lot of people didn't see with him. He coped with it with dark humor. And when he got really sick in 2019 and he was in the hospital for months at a time on and off, we were both coping with dark humor at that time as well. And it seemed very natural after he passed away to continue doing that. Hey there, friends. Lisa Kiefer here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I want to take a moment to give a special shout out to my regular GSB listeners. I absolutely love the notes you send me about how the show has impacted you. I really appreciate the reviews you leave on Apple Podcasts, not to mention all those selfies you send me after you buy your Grief as a Sneaky Bitch t-shirt. And if you're new to the show, welcome. You may be wondering why I created a show like this, a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives. I get that. When I was launching the show in 2019, a few people in my life said, you're gonna do what? But since you're tuning in, I don't think you'll be surprised to know that it struck a chord with people. I mean, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. And I'm no exception, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. I also spent a career as a social worker, as a narrative therapist, and now as founder of Reimagining Grief. And I just keep seeing how grief illiterate we are and the harm that's causing, well, all of us. So through this show and my work at Reimagining Grief, I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. Y'all, today's episode, you're going to hear some real, sometimes funny, and sometimes profane truth bombs about grief, and particularly the grief of young widowhood. My guest, Tawny Plattis, is a voice actor, a comedian, host of her own podcast, and while she uses dark humor as a tool to navigate the traumatic death of her husband, George, who is just 29. Today, we explored how Tawny uses her comedic instincts to help her navigate this tremendous loss, even just moments after she found her husband in a messy scene, dead on the floor of their home. We talk about the expectations people have about how widows should behave. We explore the discomfort and sometimes, frankly, judgment that people express when someone's grieving differently than them. And we do it all with humor and profanity, as I mentioned, but definitely with sincerity and insight because yes, we used all the tools at our disposal to talk about this difficult topic and you should feel free to do the same. I can't wait for you to meet her. I'm Tawny Plattis. I am a voice actor and comedy podcaster who has a show about coping with grief, trauma, and loss using dark humor. Awesome. Tawny, I am so excited to have you on the show, to have this conversation, to share this with our listeners. Welcome, everyone, to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you so much, Tawny, for joining me. For those of you who haven't heard of Tawny yet and her podcast, as she just shared with us, she has a podcast called death is hilarious, 
which, much like the title of my podcast, caught my attention immediately, as I'm sure it has other people. And we have had the opportunity to connect prior to today. So we have gone deep into the gift of dark humor and grief, et cetera, which we'll explore today. But I just want to welcome you to the show and to start off our conversation today, where I begin all of my conversations. And that is inviting you to share with us what your earliest memories of grief were as a child. And in particular, thinking about how were the adults in your life modeling grief. So just to remind our listeners and to remind you, sometimes that's the ways adults show emotion or behavior, but sometimes it's we actually learn in what adults don't do. So I'm always curious for my guests to share a little bit about what they saw in their growing up life and what you think that taught you kind of positively or negatively or maybe just sort of neutrally about the experiences of grief that you've faced, which you're going to share here on our show today. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a lot of fun. My story is just super fun. Everyone in my family actually has kids between the ages of 16 and 20. So I haven't lost many people in my life, like grandparents or anything. Yeah, like when I turned 26 and my husband and I didn't have children, my family was like, oh, I guess you're never having kids. You're too old. (laughs) (laughs) So the great great grandparents that did pass away when I was a kid were very old. They were in their late 90s, and my family missed them, but it was more natural. It wasn't tragic. And I was very young, so my earliest memories are more associated with grieving pets and friends who moved away as opposed to watching or experiencing too much grief in my family. I'd always been very emotional, and I remember sobbing after my dad very graphically told me about how our cat was eaten by coyotes in our neighbor's backyard. TMI, TMI, dad, TMI. (laughs) Right. Uh, What what was he? He was 21. He didn't know any better. (laughs) Yeah. And I I wasn't comforted so much, I remember, as being told not to be so emotional Mm. Because I I was being dramatic and I was making other people uncomfortable. And it was the same when my friends moved away and I experienced grief. My, my mom would tell me that people were saying something was wrong with me. And again, I was being dramatic. So after a lot of therapy and now as an adult with some life skills and tools, uh, <laughs> it's become more obvious that the emotional intensity I was experiencing was linked to hereditary depression and anxiety that wasn't even acknowledged, let alone treated in my family. Like, the mantras in my home were depressed people are bored and lazy and suck it up. Life is hard for everyone. Whoa. Which is so echoed, of course, by our broader culture, at least here in the U.S., right? Like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And if you're not happy, then you're just doing something wrong. And you need to take the next Cosmo quiz and do the top 10 list thing and, like, get your shit together already and get happy, right? So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, not not Cosmo, the Bible, but something like that. Yeah. <laughs> whichever Whichever text is your favorite, you know, samesies. <laughs> yeah. So, it sounds like In some ways, you were sort of spared some of the maybe, you know, bigger losses that some people face as a child, but you clearly at least now look back and recognize some of those different kinds of losses, pet loss or even friends moving away, the ends of relationships as warranting loss, as as being appropriate to name as loss. Do Do you think even back then you understood it in that language, even if you didn't have those words? I'm not sure that I did just because of how I was raised. 
you know, we we were raised with Christian fundamentalism. Like my family is like a rung below Westboro Baptist Church. You know, the only reason they're not out there protesting Planned Parenthood and equal marriage is because I think they're too lazy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, I don't know that I recognize that or not. I, I was in a lot of therapy. I've been in a lot of therapy since cutting ties with them and leaving that life behind in my 20s. And, you know, now I recognize it now, but at the time I just was listening to the people around me and I thought there was something just wrong with me and I, I wasn't yeah. good enough. Well, you know, you're speaking to this thing that's a theme that we've talked about with so many guests on the show, and that's sort of the pathologizing nature that we take to things like grief and normal responses to loss and trauma. And we sort of culturally in our families, in our medical systems, in our broader culture, try to as I said, pathologize or problematize that as opposed to helping people see that actually these reactions are our bodies, our minds, protective responses to hard things. So I'm glad you were able to sort of get some insight from the outside. But let's start with what you just brought up, which is I can imagine now that you are a voice actor, an actor, a comedian as an adult, that those responses when you were young from your parents about being quote-unquote overly dramatic were maybe indications to you as a young person that the life of of acting and comedy was sort of in your bones? How did you, do you look back and see that that's where you ended up? And then tell us a little bit about how you came to be in that world. And I believe your late husband, George, was also in that world. So maybe start to begin to tell us about your professional journey, but how that led you to be with George. Yeah. So I kind of came out of the womb like, ta-da, <laughs> was very dramatic, was very emotional as a kid. And I think that the adults in my life, my parents wanted that to be compartmentalized and channeled into something. So they put me into acting at a very early age. And I was a child actor locally here in San Diego, mostly in theater. I did commercial work as well. Puberty was rough. <laughs> so I kind of had a little break in there. I wasn't really the cute kid anymore. You know, in, in adulthood, I started kind of getting back into that, and I discovered voice acting. And I was like, oh, wow, you can do this from your home. You don't have to move to L.A. You don't have to hustle. I can do this even part-time. And I, I started doing it as an adult and eventually was able to build that career so it was able to replace my day job's income, and then I switched over. But as far as, like, comedy goes, that was actually something that I did use to cope with my family growing up and, like, living in a house like the one that I did. They were they were very extreme. It was really difficult. And the one survival mechanism I had was I, I could make them laugh, and that's how I could not get hurt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if that made sense, you know, if if I could, I my family didn't have really a lot of love for me, but if I could make them laugh, it felt like they did. Mm. And then that extended towards everybody in my life. Like if I was making them laugh, at least right then in that moment. I, I knew, I knew for sure. It gave me that validation that they at least liked me. There was some kind of affection for me because I didn't get that growing up. I, I didn't get really hugged very often. I didn't get a lot of affection. And that's really where I think I always call it like, you know, that was like the dragon I started chasing was comedy. I never really got into drugs, but I did get yeah. into comedy. <laughs> Maybe a safer choice, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and 
I met my husband at a mutual friends party, and he had been into acting and performing. He was into writing, and my voiceover career was was starting to take off. We went into that together and started a comedy podcast together. And he was also using dark humor as a coping mechanism, but it was a coping mechanism for his terminal illness. Mm. He had a heart condition, a very rare heart condition called hypoplastic right heart syndrome. So he had a single ventricle. He had three chambers instead of four, and his heart was a mirror image of what it should be. So the prognosis for him was always very uncertain. They only had come up with a three-stage Fontan, which was the mechanism, the surgery to allow him to survive. Like before that came out, it was just palliative care. And that particular surgery mechanism had only come out a couple years before he was born. So he was going through his life knowing he could die at any moment. Wow. He thought as a kid, he was like, okay, they're telling me I might make it until I was a teenager. And then he got into his 20s and it was like, okay, you might be, you might make it into your 30s. Then it was 40s, 50s. And we had been pretty optimistic that he could make it into his 40s and 50s because every time we went to the doctor, they were always like, you look great. (laughs) You look amazing. I can't, you know, you can do all this stuff. Like he played sports and he just lived his life how he wanted to live it. But there was always that part of him that was very aware of his mortality. And he really struggled with depression. And that was something a lot of people didn't see with him. He coped with it with humor, with, with dark humor. And when he got really sick in 2019 and he was in the hospital for months at a time on and off, we were both coping with dark humor at that time as well. And it seemed very natural after he passed away to continue doing that. Yeah. Wow. So when you met George, you guys were both in this field. You guys both had struggled, sounds like, a little bit with some level of depression from various reasons. I can imagine having a terminal or unknown diagnosis, prognosis your whole life can, you know, shift the way you're approaching life. But you knew at the time that you met and fell in love with George that, hey, this guy, of course, we don't know for any of us how long we'll live, but you knew that there was some chance that he, you guys might not grow old together. Did you, and I'll explain a little bit why I asked this question, but did you have any pause at that time or did you meet George and just think head over heels, forget it, I don't care? It was completely head over heels. I I had actually, we had gone to junior high and high school together, but I was not allowed to hang out with George Plattis because he was a troublemaker. (laughs) (laughs) And so then I married him, hat mom. (laughs) I gotcha. (laughs) Oh, completely. I, I was absolutely that kid. And I'd had a crush on him just from afar. He was Mr. Cool. You know, everybody liked him. He was popular. And I was, you know, nerdy Christian fundamentalist and just totally two different worlds. And after I had started to break away from, you know, my my life, we met at a mutual friends party and I recognized him instantly. And he was hitting on me, but it didn't even click that he would be interested in me. So our mutual friend had to come over and go, hey, George Plattis is like into you. You know, he, he wants your number. I'm like, wait, me? Like, are you sure? <laughs> So we we had that first date, and he told me right off the bat what was going on with him, that he could die at any moment, and I was completely in love with him. It, I, I just, it wasn't even a second thought to break up with him or to not pursue a relationship with him. I was completely enamored with him and had been for half of my life. Yeah. And what year was that? What was the fateful party? That was 2013. Okay. Okay. 
You know, I asked that question because I think for so many of us who have lost a spouse like I have or lost friends or just people we've met in our life that we sort of met by chance, not our family members who, you know, come with the package deal. You know, I think we sometimes wonder when the loss feels so heavy and so hard, would we think differently about that opportunity? I learned years after my husband passed away of a massive brain tumor, which was only diagnosed two weeks before he died in my arms, that it had likely been growing possibly the entire 12 years we knew each other. And so though I didn't know when I first met him and also fell head over heels in love and was like done and done, that he had that, of course, I don't think I would have changed it. But I do think we sometimes wonder what our capacities are to love fully, but then also grieve fully and what knowing would have done or not done. Oh, completely. And I I thought about that after the fact, too, when he had died and I was in so much pain and so much grief because the only person who I had ever experienced unconditional love from who would stay with me no matter what I did, what I said, who I was, who would just always be there and had proved that year after year was gone, I I wondered if it was worth it. And I thought about that a lot where I was like, I could have just gone my whole life being in this blissful ignorance and never having experienced this pain, never having had experienced that love either, but I wouldn't have known that I was missing anything. And I had to really readjust my perspective with that. And it helped once I made that realization that I was like, it wasn't about what I lost, but what I was able to give him because he didn't think anybody would ever want to be with him because of his condition. And to me, I couldn't have fathomed that. Like, I was like, you're so amazing. How could anybody not want to be with you? I can't believe you want me. And I really had to lean into that anytime it got too painful was thinking about he didn't think that anybody would ever love him completely. And he didn't think that he would ever have a family. And I was able to give that to him. And he so deserved it. And I didn't realize until after he died how many people will split so quickly, will just, you know, leave so quickly because they don't want to deal with that, you know, air quotes, deal with that. And I loved taking care of him. I loved being with him. I loved every part of him. It was amazing. And I I try to think of that now, like he got to experience all those things that he never thought that he would have. And he died when he was 29. So he was able to have all that and I was able to give give that to him. So I try to think of it as what he was able to have as opposed to what I lost. That's a really powerful shift in perspective. And you brought up something which I want to touch on later around secondary losses, you know, that can happen to so many of us that I think are one of the sneaky bitch parts of grief is all the all the other losses. But I think to your point about recognizing that when the depths of grief, and if you're a listener right now who's in the throes of that acute phase of grief, you know, you're welcome to tell us to F off, you know, if this doesn't feel right for you. (laughs) But that's definitely something that I would come, I would sort of dip back into over and over again over these past 10 years. And now almost 10 years out this summer, I, I, I feel I sit in this space a lot, but I would invite myself to sort of shift from focusing on the excruciating pain of the loss to this realization that I had experienced some trauma and not particularly, you know, loving romantic relationships in my life. And I th- I would just remind myself, he taught me what it felt like to love and be loved unconditionally. And I would have never known that 
if not for the time that I had with him. And he wouldn't have experienced that kind of love and to give love and to receive love in that unconditional way. And so I really appreciate you bringing that up because I do think that is something that we all have the capacity to do is to like invite ourselves to make that shift. And it doesn't always last. Sometimes you're kind of there and it feels beautiful and grateful. And then you slip back into the screaming at the sky and, you know, why did this happen to me? And that's okay too. So no judgment there if that's the place you're in. And I hope this conversation gives some of you a moment to think, oh, maybe there's there's a different way I can think about this. Yeah. When we come back, I asked Tawny to share what it was like to be the one to find her husband and how and why, even in that horrific moment, she used the only tool that had ever helped her survive some of the worst situations in her life, dark humor. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. He was 29 when he died. Can you tell us a little bit, not sort of in a reality TV voyeuristic Kardashians in your business kind of way, but can you tell us, you knew obviously he had been hospitalized, so you knew there was this possibility that he was going to die. Can you walk us through a little bit about what that last moments were like? And I think you've shared with me before, I'd love for you to share with my listeners how even in the moment of his passing, your reliance on humor and dark humor in particular kind of helped you navigate this most imaginable, excruciating moment. Can you tell us a little bit about that time? Hell yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) what happened was he was on oxygen and he was at home. He was really stuck in his reclining chair But he was responding to treatment. He wasn't in hospice. You know, I was there with him 24-7 to keep an eye on him, just make sure everything was okay, take care of him. But he wasn't supposed to die anytime soon. Like, we were like, oh, shit, you know, it might be like the last few years here. But, yeah, he wasn't in, you know, immediate danger. I was in the next room doing a, a voiceover session, and I came out, and I found his body on the floor. It was very messy. I you know, won't get too graphic here, but it was not fun. It was very graphic trying to resuscitate him. I was on the phone with 911, and I wasn't able to resuscitate him. The EMTs got there. They weren't able to resuscitate him. And yeah, I was just there with my husband on the floor, and I was freaking out. That was the only person that I had ever known unconditional love from, as I mentioned. And he was really the only person in my life that I was extremely close to. Like I had other friends, sure, but I wasn't really close with anybody else in my life. That was just my husband and I. I'm I'm an extreme introvert. (laughs) And I'm laying there and I'm thinking, I can't live without him. There's no point in living without him. I don't have anything. I don't have anybody. I'm going to end my life. That was my plan. Wow. Right in that moment, within minutes of him passing? Yeah. Yeah. And it was something we had admittedly talked about before, too, where we had, you know, oh, if something ever happens to you, I'm not going to be able to keep Mm -hmm. going. And the other person's like, no, 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 no. You have to take care of the dog. (laughs) Like, at least stay alive for the dog. (laughs) But we, we had that, you know, intense relationship like that. We both had felt like we had found, you know, the, the only person that really ever understood and accepted us. And I'm laying there and I'm thinking that. 
but at the same time, you know, I, I'm not ready to to leave his body. I just want to stay with him. And I'm thinking that like, okay, well, maybe I can just keep his body. And there's a trauma specialist there who is amazing. She was fantastic. And she's trying to get me to stand up so they can take his body away. There's a black bag right there, and they're going to zip him up and take him away. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and I, I look up her at her completely unfiltered. And I just go, yeah, I'm not really ready for you to take his body. But I guess if you don't, that's kind of makes me liable to get into a Norman Bates situation here, a la Psycho. And we can't really have that. That's not good. And she started cracking up. I hear the EMTs laughing, you know, a little bit, a few feet away. And I start to feel that feeling I was talking about, you know, like that happy feeling again, like that, like, oh, they, you know, they laughed. Oh, (laughs) and I couldn't stop. I was like, or I guess I could just, you know, kind of drag him around like weekend at Bernie's and see how long it takes before people notice that he's dead. They start laughing. It's EMTs and a trauma specialist. They all have dark humor. If if anybody is unaware of that, that's really prevalent in those industries where you really face trauma and death on the regular. Yeah, yeah. And it's starting to click. It's starting to all come together. I'm like, oh, okay, that's how I'm going to survive. I'm going to make jokes about this. This is going to be, I'm going to use my art, you know, and I know that's something a lot of people don't find comedy in art form, but I'm going to use this in my work. That's how I'm going to get through this and survive is through comedy. First of all, I would have totally cracked up too if I had been there and heard that. So kudos to you. And second of all, you know, I think, you know, you don't have to be a painter to a keel or a comedian or an artist. But one of the things I always say is that I think we have actually an intuitive sense about how we can, what we have in our own capacity, our own wheelhouse, our own toolkit, whatever you want to say, to kind of do the healing work that we need to do in life. But so often we get disconnected from it or we or we hear from others that we should or shouldn't do things a certain way. And so I love that you shared that story. It was like, I already know what I do, what I'm good at, what makes me feel good in life. And like immediately embraced using that tool as how you were going to navigate this completely bullshit situation of your young husband dying. So, you know, I, I appreciate that you shared that with our listeners, because as I said, I think so many people have some of these capacities or skills. Again, they're meditators or painters or they have a spiritual practice or they're, you know, athletes or do something like that. But they, we somehow get into this cultural baggage that we, especially as widows, I think, you know, women in U.S. culture, we have to, I mean, we don't have the black drapey shit for a year wardrobe lessons like we used to in the 1900s. But, you know, we have certain expectations about, how we're supposed to be mournful and quiet and sorrowful only and keep to ourselves. And I love that you just push back against that immediately, like within 15 seconds practically and said, no, this isn't, this isn't how I roll. This isn't how I'm going to live. It wasn't easy and it hasn't been easy. I still regularly get people that will find my work online and they just lay into me about it. Like somebody this week was commenting on every piece that I had on my platform. They were like, you don't love your husband. You need to keep this to yourself. This is inappropriate. I can't believe you're making jokes about this. You need to keep this to yourself. And that's that's such a prevalent theme. And that's what I really have been up against for the past, you know, year and some change in dealing with it is people just really finding it inappropriate and wrong and telling me to shut the fuck up. 
Yeah, which makes me crazy. If we were on a video podcast right now, you'd see me shaking my hands over my head because it's just this other garbage that we have, again, about these cultural beliefs that people have that there's some one right way to grieve and there's one right way to express mourning. And if we don't do it, then we're somehow not honoring. And the truth, this is why I have this platform, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. It's why I do the work I do at Reimagining Grief is like just calling bullshit on these rules that actually cause us harm. Grieving is hard. It's the hardest work you will ever do. We make it harder for one another because we both subscribe to all these rules, but also because like what you're experiencing, and I've experienced it in different ways, people sort of put their own myths and beliefs about grief on you. It's like, hey, if you don't want to use humor to deal with your grief, great, don't use it. But you don't need to sort of prescribe for other people what's right or wrong. I've definitely had people, I was a social worker, clinical director at the time that I lost my husband. So I was already, you know, back with clients within a few weeks. And So I've been sort of in the helping space, and I've been doing this work specifically around grief for the last few years. And I've had so many people say to me, if I, you know, have a sad day or if, you know, a grief wave comes over and knocks me down for a little bit, well, it's because you're doing this work and you talk about grief and you really just shouldn't be having sessions with people. And, you know, you do this work on your podcast and it's just making you sad. And I'm like, you don't even get it at all, at all. Actually talking about grief, supporting people in their grief, making jokes, having a show called Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Everything I do is actually, for me, really helpful. It actually helps me heal, and hopefully I'm helping other people heal too. So if this is not your jam for how you do grief, then don't do it. But we got to let go of this. It's why I always come back to this, like, there is no one way, there is no rule, there is no five ways to. And I'm just want to take a moment, Tani, to just say, I'm sorry that you've had to receive that kind of pushback from other people. But I think so many grievers have where they have, it could be strangers because they're in a public arena like you are. And I know a lot of the sort of celebrities who have lost spouses have had that same thing if you're in the public eye. But even those of us who aren't in the public eye, people who just have the brother-in-law or the colleague or the you know, daughter or somebody saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing it this way, or I don't think this is the right way to behave. You know, we've all had to deal with that some way. And that's why I do this work is like, let's just stop. Let's stop inflicting our grief beliefs on other people. Yeah. And I so appreciate what you do for that reason. So needed. Yeah. It just, it makes me a little bit crazy. So that was one of the places I was going to ask you. So you had a show with George. It was already doing comedy, right? Yes. It was a comedic show. So how did you, besides the naysayers and the whatever trolls online who decided to, which, by the way, if you're one of those trolls listening right now, don't even bother. I'm not going to respond to your crap. But how did you decide to sort of take that existing platform? Tell me a little bit about what the show was that you and George hosted together, and how did you make that shift to what is now Death is Hilarious? So we had a show called The Dirty Bits Podcast that's still on my Death is Hilarious feed. So if you want to hear me and George, you can go back several episodes and you can actually still hear us. It was a podcast that was all about the sexy, scandalous, salacious stories from history that were told in my really ramped up Southern Californian Valley Girl accent. (laughs) And 
If you like drunk history, it's very along those same lines. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. I love drunk history. <laughs> oh, we did too. oh my God. Big fans. It's the funniest. Talk about a show that's binge worthy. Exactly. Yeah. George and I were huge fans, and I'm a history buff. He is he was more like politics and government and philosophy. So we just got to talk about stuff all the time. And, you know, I would be in bed and we're just a bunch of nerds or just a couple of nerds. <laughs> We'd be in bed and I'd just be reading to him from some article and I would sum it up and I'd go, so then, you know, he was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And then she was like, yeah, well, watch me. And he would crack up and we were like, you know, in voiceover, I was in voiceover. He did my editing and production. And I was like, this could be a show. This could be a podcast. We have all the equipment for this. And that's what we started doing. And I would do either like long form narration you know, where I was telling the story in that, you know, Valley Girl voice. And we'd also intersperse it with episodes where I was telling him the story and then he would interject because he's hilarious. And he would help me write a lot of the scripts. And that was our show. After he died, I was like, how am I going to go back to work and do this without him? You know, I didn't want to have anything you know, to do with that particular show. I, I, you know, I'm an actor and like the podcast was, you know, part of our income. And that's just what a lot of people don't like to hear is that, you know, that that's my work. I'm an actor and like that podcast is a part of my income. If I didn't produce a show, I'm not getting paid and I can't just switch, you know, jobs so easily, unfortunately. And so I'm like, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? And that's when I was like, I, I want to incorporate that humor. I still want to do comedy. I still want to do this. How am I going to make this, you know, a comedic show about what I'm going through, about grieving, loss, trauma? And it was very messy at first. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, The first few episodes are me interviewing a couple of other people about their grief and loss and trauma responses who are other podcasters. There are a couple of episodes where I'm reviewing entertainment through the lens of somebody who's grieving and trying to intersperse humor in there. It was very messy. And it eventually evolved into a show with my co-host now, Sam, where we read each other funny letters on the show about what we're going through in terms of grief, loss, and trauma. Mm. And it's 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 kind of like a stand-up routine between two people. <laughs> gotcha. And that's also interspersed with episodes where I'm interviewing other creatives about how they're using grief or how they're using comedy to cope with their grief, loss, and trauma. So it's a lot of other comedy podcasters, people that are artists that use that in their art. Like Stormy Gale recently was on my show and she creates these comics about skeletons making dark jokes having to do with death. And that's kind of where it started and how it came to be. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, so many questions I have for you. One of them is even just this idea that you have this catalog of conversations that you and George held, of course, you know, formally because it was your work, you were doing it for the show. But what do you notice about those? Have you gone back and listened to those old episodes since he died? And I mean, what does having those recordings mean for you at this place in your grief? I'm so grateful that I have them. And it's one of those things that I always go back to when people tell me or told me even that we were sharing too much, that we were putting too much out there, that I put too much out there. I'm so glad that we obsessively recorded and took so many pictures because I have so much that I can go back and 
experience and I can hear his voice. I, I, I'm so grateful and I don't take it for granted that I have so much of his voice recorded. And we would go on other podcasts because we were crazy about each other and it was never a secret. Like we were obsessed with each other. And we had been invited onto a podcast to talk about our love story on Valentine's Day. Mm. So I have this six minute bit from a podcast where we're talking about how we met and how much we love each other. Oh, what a gift. Such a gift. It's such a gift. And I, I'm so grateful that we have that because so, you know, as another widow, like what, no. what wouldn't you give, right? <laughs> I would give anything yeah. for that. I mean, really all the audio recordings I have pretty much of Eric were him behind the camera when he was filming our daughter. You know, she was seven when he when he died, but he was the videographer of our family. So usually he was behind the camera, but you could hear him talking to me or talking to Lily. And even those moments, not quite the catalog that you have, oh, like such a gift. Yeah, I treasure them and I'm so grateful for them. And it's something that I remind myself of when people tell me to shut up. Yeah. If we had done that, if we hadn't shared so much, if we had, you know, pulled back or whatever, I wouldn't have all of that to go back and visit. And it's it's something that also reminds me it was real and it happened. He was real. What we had was real. Yeah. And that's so important. I, you know, I talk and write often about the sort of duality of time in grief that, that well, the further we get away from whatever that that moment of loss was, in some ways there's some ease because that initial, you know, physiological fight or flight stress response that happens in the wake of loss, especially a traumatic loss like what you experienced, gives us some space. And at the same time, it's difficult, I don't know for you, for me, is that then we get further away our memories. It becomes more abstract. It becomes more distant. And that is hurtful and harmful in its own way. So to have those recordings, I can imagine, allows you to be able to, when you want to, drop into the very presence of George because it's so visceral in the hearing of his voice and the conversations that you held. Exactly. Yeah. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, voice actor, Tawny Plattis. When we come back, I asked Tawny to share if sometimes her reputation as a comedian and her public persona as a voice actor ever makes it, well, hard. Hard for her to show the other sides of her grief, the sorrow, the anger, the whole package. So as you heard at the top of the show, it's my mission to change the narratives of grief one conversation at a time. And part of that work includes helping grievers start to understand that some of our own suffering comes from the cultural myths and the grief beliefs, as I call them, that permeate our culture so deeply that they become embedded in our own thoughts, in our own self-talk. Those beliefs get embedded into our everyday practices, into our family systems, even our company policies and cultures, all of which just cause so much harm. I've intentionally created safe, supportive, and educational services to meet people wherever they're at. Whether you're an individual looking for grief support, or perhaps you're a leader at a company looking to bring more empathy and compassion to your corporate culture, I'm here to help. You can learn more about these offerings and more about why I do this work by visiting reimagininggrief.com. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, 
Voice actor, Tawny Plattis. So, Tawny, I want to ask you for a moment to share with us a little bit about your serious side, if if you want to. And, and the reason I ask that is I can imagine... And I feel like this a little bit in the, because now I have a sort of growing public, you know, people feel they know me because they hear me on this show and because of the work that I do. So I wonder if you ever struggle with, you know, you are using comedy and dark humor and you have a very public persona and that's useful to you as you cope with grief. But do you ever feel like it's you don't have permission either because of this public expectation or even your expectation of yourself to not be in the space to use humor, to be sorrowful, to be sad, to be angry, to be some other version of yourself in your grief. Do you feel there's like pressure to always be the comedian, to be the performer? Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, completely. There, I can't tell you how many people have been like, I'm so glad you're all better now. <laughs> Right, because that bullshit binary thing we do, it's like, oh, if you're smiling, then you're done grieving. Like, duh, not. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So often people don't even bring it up now or they... They don't. They don't check on me because I'm fine. I'm. I'm making jokes about it. They see me getting jobs. They see me posting these episodes. They hear the comedy bits where I'm laughing or you know I'm being I'm being a character, and you know then when I do want to talk about it or when I am sad, I, I find that it also makes them uncomfortable too. Yeah. They're like, "Wait, I thought you were past this." I'm like, "Yeah, it's been a year and I, you know some change. I'm totally past this. I'm fine." <laughs> It's all so good, homie. Ridiculous. I mean, our, our <laughs> expectations about grief are well, you mean we live in a country that at max typically has a three day bereavement policy. So that says everything right there that you need to know. Three days. Yeah, about that. So how do you deal with that? I mean, this kind of probably ties into what you mentioned earlier, which is the secondary losses, because people suck, as I say so often on this show, (laughs) at showing up and bearing witness to people in their pain, because we suck at showing up and bearing witness to our own pain. That's just like not what we're taught how to do. So I can imagine that not only were some people kind of there was an attrition in the people in your life because they just weren't good at that anyways. And then doubling down, there was some attrition in people in your life because they saw this public persona of you and made some really false assumptions that, oh, if she can make a joke, then she must be fine and not need me. So how have you navigated that? How have there been people you, and not to name names, but just how have you, have you been able to keep people in your life? Or do you have a place where you can say like, yes, I meant what I said when I cracked that joke the other day, but today I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm whatever I am. Yes, other widows yeah. and other trauma survivors. So there's kind of a happy balance between that because you have the other widows who really get it and they've been amazing. So if you know you are a widow, find that support group, yeah. find that group. And we're so privileged to live in this era with the internet. So you have all of these groups available to you. Find those groups with the widows because they will get it. They will be there. And, you know, like you mentioned, secondary losses, that's hard because a lot of the people you typically turn to or you would want to turn to simply don't have the tools. They don't have the capacity. And that's not even their fault, you know? Yeah. 
again, we're not taught. I mean, when we think about exactly. the family systems we grow up in, the sort of broader culture. I mean, I have listeners from around the world, but many, many cultures have this, you know, sort of, you know, capitalistic, frankly, white supremacist kind of buck up, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, kind of put on a happy face, productivity culture. So I get what you're saying. It's like sometimes I would rage against the people who really were incapable of showing up, the people I thought who would show up. But on the other hand, I can definitely have some empathy there, which is like, well, how would you know that? Because we didn't learn this stuff. Yeah, I didn't know that. I had no idea how to be there for people that were grieving, mourning before this happened. Yeah. Just just the same. I think about it now where I'm like, oh, my best friend's grandma passed away, you know, within the last few years. And I did not show up for her like I should have. Yeah. I had no idea what to do. And I didn't know that at the time. I know that now. And that's something I try to keep in mind yeah. when I'm frustrated <laughs> with yeah. with people. And it's it's been easier to accept that as time has, has gone by. But yeah, having those other friends that are widows, making those other friends, and just trauma survivors too, because it's also helpful to have somebody who is outside of it a little bit. Yes. You know, when, when you also have people that are too close to the situation, like people who are also grieving the loss of George, that gets tough because then they start to creep into like, oh, can you comfort me? Yes. You know, and I'm like, it's my fucking husband yeah. that died. I'm <laughs> like, no. <laughs> you know, so you have to have those people that can have compassion and that can give you that support that aren't necessarily in that same space of grief that you're in. That is so brilliant. I'm so glad you brought that up. There's so many things you touched on there. One is that sort of like having having people in your life who are somewhat removed. So whether it's widows you maybe didn't know before the circumstance or people have experienced other loss or even a helping professional because the people who love us most love us so much that two things happen. One, they want to try to fix us. It's really hard for them to see us in pain. And so their sort of natural instinct is to like come in and try to fix, which of course, grief doesn't need fixing. It just needs to be experienced. There's no shortcut. You know, there's again, no shortcut to it. And like you said, I, I use this model of sort of the concentric rings of grief. So it's like you offer grief support inward, and then you receive grief support outward. So when you're the sort of widow in the center of that, sort of in the core of the circle, you know, maybe his best friends or your best friends offer support to you. And then if they're grieving, they sort of go one ring out, mm -hmm. not one ring in. And that's sometimes the trick is that you end up, someone shows up to, con I've definitely had this experience where someone showed up to console me and somehow within minutes, I found myself consoling them over losing Eric. Yep. And I was like, while I would like to think in theory, I could do that. F you, like, fuck you. This is actually, you know, my time. And again, not their necessarily intention, but it's why I think what you said is so important is how do you create these other communities where people have some sort of distance from you? you know, that who can sort of be more in parallel and sort of mirror what you're experiencing versus either trying to fix you or sucking all the oxygen out of the room, as my mom would say, <laughs> you know, with their grief. And I think the other thing you talked about, I really appreciate about sort of also finding comfort in being in community with other people who've experienced trauma is part of what I why I do this work is expanding how we define grief. And I think, you, of course, you don't just have to experience death loss. When we think about traumatic events, there is so much grief tied up in there, sort of grief of our sense of safety, let's say, if it was a crime or even if it was an accident or an injury, grief of 
what we've lost, what our what we had hoped for our future. And so I think there's a misunderstanding that somehow trauma is totally sort of disconnected or devoid of grief. And I think there's so much overlap there. Oh, completely. Mm, yeah. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> yeah. So I appreciate that you sort of have figured out a way to at once find maybe some empathy and compassion for those people who have not been able to show up or show up in the ways that you've needed and took it upon yourself to say, but wait, I do need a community of people who can show up and be present and not be either sort of taking the attention away or trying to make problematic, you know, what your grief actually looks like. And the fact that they can understand that some days you are laughing and it's genuine and maybe an hour later you're in the depths of the well of grief. It's one of the hardest things you have to do, too, because it, it coincides with the, it's like what you said. It's that secondary loss. And you there's you have to do it yourself while you're already in all that pain and grief. You have to go make new friends. Yeah, it's oh, my God. It's I mean, this is why I will say grief is a full time job on top of all the other full time jobs that we have. Right. We go back to work. Same thing. I had to go back to work after two weeks for lots of different reasons. Culturally, because the organization, like all of our companies in this country, didn't really understand what was needed, but also because I was now a mother of a seven-year-old and I was the only person earning money. So, like, I didn't really have a choice to sit. You know, people are always like, you were so brave and how courageous to go back to work. I was like, um... It's not a choice, homie. (laughs) (laughs) I did not win the lottery. I do not have cash on hand. I've got to do this work. And I also, you know, have a daughter to take care of. I can't just slink away. So, I think... It's a really important point you make, which is it does suck in a way that we have to take on this next extra level of responsibility of finding those communities of support to help us just feel. It's not that those communities are, I'd be curious to know how you see about it. It's not, I, for me, when I have found those communities, and thankfully some of them were people who were my friends at the time, and they were able to sort of set aside their own grief over Eric and show up for me in ways that are meaningful. So shout out to some of my girlfriends (laughs) who were able to do that. But it wasn't that they were able to show up and do anything really to fix. It was that they were able to show up. And when I was in the mood to laugh, they cracked jokes right alongside of me. And when I was on the ground and I couldn't even make it to the couch and I was bawling, they crawled down on the ground and just sat with me. So it was like they were able to just mirror me. And I think in some ways, the like underlying theme there was they were able to make me not feel like I was losing my mind. Like it was okay that I was laughing one minute and then on the floor in the fetal position the next because they weren't trying to fix it or judge it. They were just like, oh, okay, this is where we are now. We're on the floor with Lisa. Okay. And it was like that. I They made me feel normal because being a widow, especially a young widow, I mean, I felt like an alien. Yeah. Oh, completely. I was 28. And yeah, I was like, well, who the fuck do I talk to? Like, how, how am I going to relate to anybody ever again? Yeah. That sense of isolation, I think, is one of the really painful aspects of grief. Again, even not for a young widow, just any kind of grief, any kind of loss is that something has shifted in our narrative and our sense of our place in the world. And for you, as you've described your relationship with George, he really was this foundational experience of unconditional love. But for every kinds of loss, there is some disconnection to our sense of belonging. And so then this feeling that we have to sort of perform into some version of okayness 
so that we can be accepted again is exhausting. And it isn't actually the healing work of grief. Yes, it's so exhausting. It's impossible to even convey just how exhausting it is. It really is. It's really one of the reasons. So when I first started doing this work, the this show, this podcast was the first piece of the work that I did. I was doing some writing at the time, but what I wanted to do in delivering the show, and I think Death is Hilarious, your podcast does that too, and there's some new shows out there, although when I started this, there really wasn't much out there, is I wanted people who weren't even ready to be in conversation with their friends, who were maybe still at home, they were driving in their car, they were going for a walk, they were wherever they were, to hear these conversations that I have on the show. And even though they didn't know me from anybody, and they didn't know my guest, even if sometimes I have you know more famous guests, but even if they didn't know, or the story that that guest was telling wasn't exactly their story, that they felt seen. They felt mirrored. They felt held in that story like, oh yeah, that person had brain fog for a year. Okay, it's totally cool that I can't even remember my neighbor's name half the time or you know, when my sister's birthday is or whatever. You know, just hearing other people's stories make you feel a little less alone and a little less alien. Completely. That is one of the reasons that I keep doing what I I do. Originally, it was like, okay, I need to create a show because that's what I do for a living. Yeah. And it has turned into more of a way to connect with people so they feel seen too. I can't tell you how many other women have reached out and they're like, I have tattoos. I curse. Yeah. I make dark jokes. I thought I was the only one. So many women have contacted me throughout my various platforms and said, oh my God, I can't tell you like how seen I feel right now. I thought I was crazy. I don't have anybody in my life who gets this. I, I'm so grateful that you are posting this stuff. And, you know, just just that helps to be able to keep creating that content and to have that value. Yeah. And to keep showing up being authentically you. You know, I think one of our missions, all of us as humans, but I think especially when we take on the work of grief, is to figure out how to keep showing up in our integrity, in our authenticity, which can be particularly challenging when you're in sort of a public space. But when you get those messages from people, and I get them too from this work where people, you know, like, thanks for saying I'm tattooed, I swear, I talk honestly and openly about the hard bullshit, but also the thoughtful, beautiful, spiritual, you know, moments I've had or invite a guest to share those things. And you just never know that how much you can be impacting somebody, even if you don't have a platform like a podcast, if you're a listener thinking about this, if you're talking about it with children, or if you're talking about it with your neighbor, or just showing up to the degree that you can be authentic with that person. And I will say, a la Brene Brown, not everybody deserves your story. So, you know, you have to decide where and when you do it. But when you show up in your authenticity, in your grief, whether it's a joyful day or a shitty day or, a, you know, grief wave knocked you down day, you just never know who you're helping feel seen and feel less alone. Completely. And, and feeling like you're not wrong. Yeah. Validated even. Validated, yeah. yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times I was just going about my, my life and people were just judging me. Just, I, you know, if I'd make the joke because I'd feel better or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, just, just feeling, yeah, feeling less alone. Yeah. I think it's really one of the most important sort of gifts that we can offer to one another and ourselves. I mean, to me, even 
holding space for other people's stories like I do, of course, like I'm doing now here on this podcast, like I do in the one-on-one work, you know, where other people are like, God, that's got to be exhausting. And why do you do that? And why, you know, it's probably just making you sad. And aren't you over Eric yet? And blah, 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 all the stupid shit. Jesus. We could have a whole nother show about the stupid shit people say in grief. Truly. Truly. But to me, listening to other people actually helps me. I mean, sometimes I feel a little almost selfish. It's like when I get to hold space for somebody else, I am showing my own heart, my own wounds, some kind of love, you know? And that's like, I mean, that's a gift. That's why I say hosting this podcast really is truly an honor of my lifetime because not only do I get to impact the lives of people I will probably never meet, I am moved and learn something through every single conversation that I hold. And that's a gift. Completely. As we start to close the show today, I I want you to definitely tell people where they can find you and your work. But I'm curious, I ask this often when I have particularly kind of more professional folks on my show to share a little bit with me about like, what's your next curiosity or your next learning or what you might want to where when you want to take your work, I mean, of course, kind of in the realm of grief and trauma and loss, but do you have, are you sort of thinking what might be next or what you want to learn or what you want to explore in terms of how you marry your craft of comedy and art with the things you're learning about grief and loss and trauma? For me, I take it so moment by moment, to be perfectly honest. It's it's whatever I'm going through at that time, whatever I'm feeling. I'm I'm a new widow. So there are constantly these new things that I'm bumping up against. Like I'm I'm in my first I don't want to say too much because I really like them, but I'm in my first serious relationship. And, you know, it's only been a little bit over a year. And that's a whole thing, you know, oh, as a widow. Is let's like, have a whole nother episode, shall we, about dating <laughs> right? widows? Oh my God. Okay. And not, ju- and not just like the Bumble dating where it's easy, you yeah. know, you just, you order a guy offline and he's in, he's out and you, <laughs> you know, you fill the, you fill the literal void, if anything, <laughs> you know, an actual caring, loving relationship. That's a whole other experience that I wasn't expecting. And then especially after only a year and some change, that's something that I'm trying to figure out how to navigate too while I have a public platform and I talk about yeah. being a widow without, you know, dragging this poor guy into it all. Oh, girl, I feel <laughs> ya. That really is a whole nother conversation we might have next season about both just the comedic value of the whole circus of dating and as a widow, but also I think Oh, it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> so I had I probably could write an entire book with the stories I've had over the past 10 years. But but also to your point, like how do you carry George's memory forward? How do you integrate this work and still be present for these new opportunities and these new relationships? So interesting stuff. I'm sure we'll stay tuned. <laughs> so if people want to hear your show or learn about the work you do, where can they find you? My show is called Death is Hilarious. You can visit deathishilarious.com or visit any podcast listening device and subscribe to the show. I also do sketches on TikTok. I'm at Tawny Plattis on TikTok. Awesome. Y'all got to check her out. As I said, the minute we met and saw each other's podcast names and then talked, we were hooked. <laughs> A bunch of tattooing, swearing, funny jokesters who actually have some insights and wisdoms to uh, share about grief and loss. Thank you, Tawny, so much for coming on the show today. It was such a pleasure. And I'm sure this is the beginning of many conversations to come. 
Thank you so much. It's always so nice to talk to you, Lisa. Y'all, I told you, for real, this was unlike any episode I've done these past few seasons. I mean, I've definitely had my share of laughs, like with fellow widow and author of Black Widow, Leslie Grace Streeter. But this conversation was unique. I really appreciated learning about how Tani uses the tools she has without apology to care for herself in her grief. It's a reminder to me, and I hope a reminder to all of you, that you get to use whatever tools help you feel better in your grief. Or as I always say, helps grief suck just a little bit less. Special thanks to Giles Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. And a shout out to the team at Studio Pod for producing the episode. As we close the show, I'd love to ask you a quick favor. As I mentioned, I love hearing from my listeners. After this, I'm asking you to head to Apple Podcasts, find the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating and write a review. The world of algorithms counts on that to get this show out to the people who might need it most. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Tawny Plattis. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>